Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Today on the show, we celebrate the 10-year anniversary of the multi-award-winning program Open Spaces. The show began in January of 2006, and since that time, the show has won 37 regional and national awards for reporting excellence. Today, we'll hear a number of those award-winning stories. Topics will include a controversial decision by the Wheatland School Board, the death of a Wyoming soldier, how a young man got lost in Wyoming's juvenile justice system, how goats produce spider silk, the state taxidermy competition, and more. So stay with us for the next hour as we travel down memory lane on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Kristen Espelund. I'm Elsa Partan. I'm Addie Goss. I'm Molly Messick. And I'm Willow Belden. That was a collage from the former co-hosts of this program over the last 10 years. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. Let's jump into the program with this story that aired almost 10 years ago. The white bark pine nut is a critical food source for grizzly bears, but climate change is killing off the trees. Kristen Espelund-Gorlay has more. Grizzly bears throughout North America are getting ready to fatten up for the winter. Consuming enough calories to pack on the necessary weight will be their full-time job. In Yellowstone, the fattiest, highest-calorie bear snack is a little nut, the white bark pine nut, and bears need lots of them. In fact, nearly two-thirds of their caloric intake is white bark pine nuts. But here along Yellowstone's mountain ridges, the trees that produce these nuts are under attack. A group of scientists trudges up a mountain road toward a stand of whitebark pines. Entomologist Dr. Jesse Logan is a slim, white-bearded Forest Service retiree. He takes an axe to the bark of one of these trees. He says he can already tell this tree fell victim to its attacker, the mountain pine beetle. Killed summer before last, and I'm just looking to get some idea of how productive it may have been, how many beetles it was producing. Dr. Diana Six huffs and puffs along with the group. She's right at home in the forest, where she studies beetles in their habitat and collects them to take back to her lab for dissection. She says these beetles aren't native species, but they're more commonly found causing trouble for lodgepole pines, which grow at lower elevations. There's been rare events in the past where we've had mortality in whitebark pine, but it's certainly not the, the norm. The beetle has never really done well at those elevations until now now that it's it's warm enough for the beetle there and of course now it's doing very well six says lodgepole pines have evolved natural defenses against mountain pine beetles like oozing resin to spit the beetles out but whitebark pines haven't done so well warmer temperatures and longer warm seasons have helped beetles survive at higher elevations and spread to new host species Whereas they still have resin responses, they're very, very weak. And so you'll see sometimes just very small amounts of resin produced, and the beetles seem to be able to get past that very easily. 
But even in some trees, you won't even see a resin response. It's almost like they're just kind of sitting ducks. Warmer temperatures have also fueled the spread of another pest, white pine blister rust. Cold temperatures used to slow or kill this non-native fungus, but these days, Dr. Dianasic says it's chewing its way through whole stands of white barks, and that's compounding the problem. What we found was that trees that were blister rusted were more likely to be attacked by the mountain pine beetle. So this has some pretty major implications. We already have a disease that's just hammering these, these trees. We have a beetle that's responding to increasingly warm temperatures and higher survival rates at these high elevations. And now we have an interaction where it appears that the, the disease is actually predisposing these trees to attack. And so this is a really bad situation. Really bad because scientists say there's no foreseeable end to human-caused global warming. Under this stand of whitebark pines on a hot, humid day, Dr. Jesse Logan gestures toward the trees and says they may be resilient, but they can only handle so much. There are limits to resiliency in the biosphere. We're seeing things that indicate, you know, we're putting a stress on the biosphere. Now, the biosphere is us. So I would say what we're seeing, you, you can say, so what, something else, for only so long. Whitebark pine's a really resilient system, but there, you can push it just so far and we are pushing it so far. From what I see in spending a lot of time in the field with an ax in my hand trying to understand the population dynamics, there's no end in sight. As long as warming continues, right. we're going to see the same sorts of catastrophic collapse in the system that's already occurring in the greater Yellowstone. And Logan says that because whitebark pine trees don't have any commercial value, they're not surveyed as much by Park Service or Forest Service airplanes. That makes monitoring their health and stopping the spread of fungus and beetles enormously time-consuming and expensive. These stands of trees are so remote and so high up the mountains. What's more, entomologist Diana Six says Yellowstone is just one of many western ecosystems suddenly afflicted. But we've seen this all across the west and white bark pine stands. All of a sudden, right around the same period of time, all these stands started being heavily impacted by my mountain pine beetle that can easily and com completely be attributed to changes in temperature. White bark pine might grow elsewhere across the west for now, but nowhere else, except in Yellowstone, do grizzly bears and a host of other animals depend on it. A bird called the Clark's Nutcracker, for example, specializes in plucking out the white bark pine seeds and burying them all over the place for winter food. In fact, it's the only means white bark pine has for spreading its seeds. Other pines depend sometimes on natural forest fires to force open their cones, and the seeds have little wings that carry them on the wind. Not so for white bark pine. The red squirrel also needs white bark pine seeds to survive the winter. They stash hundreds of cones and lucky grizzly bears raid these treasure chests for the calories they need late fall. It's a tight and complicated web, and scientists say it's already beginning to unravel. Nearly two-thirds of whitebark pine stands have been affected in the Yellowstone area already. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Kristen Espelond. It turns out that if you need a really good spider web, you may need to get it from a goat. Several years ago, researchers at the University of Wyoming genetically modified or altered goats so that their milk contains spider silk. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has this story that was the winner of an Edward R. Murrow and Public Radio News Director Award 
for best feature story. So here's where we do the purification from the milk. This is University of Wyoming professor Randy Lewis showing us around his research area that takes up a hallway at the animal science facility on campus. What happens is you run it through the column and the fat stays on the inside. Lewis has been looking at practical applications for spider silk for over 20 years. Spider silk is considered a better option for sewing up wounds and injuries than other materials, but the problem has always been with how to develop mass quantities of it. Over a decade ago, a Canadian company discovered a way to put a gene into goats that allows silk protein to come out of goat's milk. But the company tired of the effort, and Professor Lewis and his research team have taken it over. Milking about 10 does right now. Um, we're collecting that milk. We've designed methods to be able to purify the protein from the milk, and we will then be spinning fibers for a variety of applications. The applications that Lewis is particularly excited about involve fixing tendons and maybe even bones. As an example, when older people suffer a rotator cuff tear, the repair involves them not using that part of the shoulder until it heals. But Lewis says that means people end up with scar tissue instead of the type of tissue that is completely repaired. So the thought process is, is that we can come up with something that we can use to hold the tendon together and still allow somebody to do at least some moderate kinds of, of rehab to use it to a certain extent so that it actually develops the real kind of tendon tissue that you need. So far, the research has been positive, but Lewis says the challenge is to develop enough goat silk so that it can be properly tested. We already know we have materials that are actually stronger than, than your normal ligaments. So it's a matter, again, of, of getting enough material, making sure that you can get the kinds of, of physical properties that you want, and make sure that it's going to work in the, in the body the way it's supposed to. And that's where the goats come in. They're kept in a large barn at the University of Wyoming stock farm. There they're fed and milked, and the milk is then returned to the lab where the silk protein is filtered out. But in order to get enough silk, they need more goats. So they are breeding with the hope that the offspring will carry the gene. Across the barn stand some recently weaned baby goats, and early evidence is that the breeding has worked. But Professor Lewis is still having some problems. He's having a hard time trying to keep them from jumping through the gate and running around the barn. What are you doing over there, knothead? You are probably still wondering why goats are used instead of spiders. A simple reason is that it was hard to get spiders to spin enough silk. The other problem is that spiders eat each other, which can have a negative impact on the population. Lewis says goats are easier to deal with than cows, so that's why they're used. And so far, so good. So we can collect easily 10 to 50 times more material to be able to spin fibers. The other feature for goats is, is that if we decide to go for biomedical devices like artificial ligaments, artificial tendons, or the bone repair material, what the FDA has already done is approved at least one drug that was produced in goat's milk. So it just means that there is a very clear path for getting FDA approval for anything like that. Lewis is also trying to develop spider silk through plants such as alfalfa, but that's taking a lot longer. Lewis has been studying spider silk for over 20 years, and since he's been at the cutting edge of the research, it is taking longer than he would like. He's also fighting to keep the research funded, 
both of those things can get frustrating. But Lewis does believe that the effort will lead to real-world applications soon. That story was by Bob Beck. When we come back, former reporter Peter O'Dowd remembers a fallen soldier. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to the 10-year anniversary edition of Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Melody Edwards. Over the years, Wyoming has had its share of fallen soldiers. On March 10th of 2008, Staff Sergeant David Julian stepped outside of a storefront in Baghdad and was killed by a suicide bomber. A month after his death, Peter O'Dowd visited Julian's family and best friend. Becky Frame has thousands of her brother's photographs stored on a home computer. Some show the violence of war, smoldering buildings, unexploded bombs. But every so often, a picture comes up that displays the mischief she remembers. Like this one. Somewhere in the desert, David Julian is standing in front of a tank, his middle finger extended playfully toward the camera. And of course, he can't just look at the camera and be normal. He's got to make stupid faces. She says Julian smiled in his sleep. He tickled his niece and nephew until their little bodies couldn't take it anymore. Brother-in-law Alex Frame remembers the torment he endured while living with Julian and his best friend, Josh Rasnick. I have a dog that didn't like to be house-trained very well. And every morning, he'd always poop right in front of the door. And Josh and Dave would always, always, no matter if they were out of town, they would drive home. So they'd be home in the morning just to hear me step in it. Julian was a 31-year-old tank commander on his third tour in Iraq. He was due home in July, and by October, he would have been out of the military for good. Becky Frame says this time, Julian knew his luck was running low. I told him when he left, you stay in your tank, you don't get out of your tank, I don't, I don't care, you pee in a bottle, you don't get out of that tank. He would never tell me too much, because I don't think he wanted any of us to be scared. Julian was married less than a year to his wife Erin when he died. In December, the couple had their first child, a girl named Elizabeth. His sister says Julian came home for Christmas last year. He spent only 18 days with his daughter. And Becky Frame says the hardest part is knowing that her niece will grow up with no memories of her father. Yeah, there are moments that I'm angry. I'm angry he's gone, but... He believed in what he did, and if he believed in it, then I have to. I would like nothing more than to be able to be angry at the Army or angry at somebody, but there's not really anybody to be angry at. Except, Frame says, at the man who took her brother's life in that Baghdad market. Now there's a suicide bomber who is extremely real to me. On the day of Julian's funeral, the residents of Evanston, Wyoming, lined the streets leading to the city's cemetery. They waved American flags and watched Sheriff's Deputy Josh Rasnick lead the funeral procession to his best friend's gravesite. A few weeks later, Rasnick straightens the flags that have become tangled in the wind. He's known Julian since seventh grade when they harassed rival Boy Scout troops together. Rasnick says it's that mischief that he'll miss the most. Whether it's sitting BS or go harass or <laughs> play a joke on somebody. 
it's going to be difficult to not be able to do that anymore. A stand of pine trees watches over the grave. Julian hated pine trees. He cut them down near his base in Georgia so he could be reminded of the barren, windswept landscape of Wyoming. Rasnick laughs. Staff Sergeant David Julian would appreciate the irony. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Peter O'Dowd. You wouldn't think that a piece of art would cause much controversy, but that's exactly what a sculpture called Carbon Sink installed on the University of Wyoming campus did. It was a pinwheel of charred logs that sought to draw a connection between coal, global warming, and increased beetle kill. In 2012, Wyoming Public Radio's Irina Zhorov reported in this nationally award-winning piece that this supposedly anti-carbon message certainly got the attention of lawmakers, donors, and those in industry. The piece was installed in 2011 and was removed in May of 2012, a year earlier than expected. After carbon sinks removal, UW professor Jeff Lockwood wrote a scathing piece accusing the university of buckling to political pressure. So we requested records from UW to see if there was any truth to that. We got a large stack of printouts and a thumb drive filled with hundreds of emails and documents pertaining to the sculpture. Some were from industry reps, others were from legislators. One of those was from Gillette Representative Greg Blickery, as read by a WPR staff member. I just read the Casper Star Tribune story on the front page about the artist hired by the university to produce a product that trashes the very industries that provide nearly all the income in Wyoming for the state and for the university. Laramie Representative Kermit Brown wrote that it almost seems to mandate that we have a second four-year school in the state oriented toward the interest of those who make the state successful, meaning the energy industry. Gillette Representative Tom Lubno, who serves in the powerful post as House Majority Floor Leader, wrote, quote, I am considering introducing legislation to avoid any hypocrisy at UW by ensuring that no fossil fuel-derived tax dollars find their way into the University of Wyoming funding stream. As soon as I hit the send button on that one, I called and said, throw that one away, I'm going to send you another one. The records we obtained didn't turn up the new statement, but in his public statements and future correspondences, Representative Lubno said he would never tinker with the university's funding stream. The university and the Legislative Service Office said it's very hard to come up with an exact number for how much of the university's budget comes directly or indirectly from Wyoming's coal mines and oil and gas fields. But 60 percent of UW's budget seemed a fair low-bracket estimate. And so Representative Lubno wanted to take advantage of a teachable moment. Whether you appreciate that or not, and whether you like that or not, between 60 and 80 percent of your budget comes from those extractive industries, and it's something you ought to know. Peabody Energy wrote and said their $2 million donation to UW was in question. And president of the Petroleum Association of Wyoming, Bruce Hinchy, had his own teachable moment when he wrote to a who's who list of Wyoming industry, quote, 
The next time the University of Wyoming is asking for donations, it might be helpful to remind them of this and other things they have done to the industries that feed them before you donate, end quote. Chris Boswell, UW Vice President for Governmental and Community Affairs, was working for Governor Meade at the time. Carbon sink did come up, and frequently not in the sort of formal channels. In other words, the documents we received were just the tip of the iceberg. As it turned out, that installation played a role in budget decisions in, in the Appropriations Committee. As an example, Governor Meade had proposed a $2 million appropriation for the Cultural Trust Fund. If you go back and listen to what occurred, there was a very simple motion to delete the $2 million from the governor's budget, and it passed without discussion. What that tells you is that there had been plenty of discussion. To be clear, the Cultural Trust Fund helped fund a portion of the carbon sink. Governor Meade said he wasn't crazy about carbon sink either, but he tried to mitigate. To the angry one, I said, listen, I... (laughs) We can like or, or not like that, but I, th- I think that we have to recognize that these things can happen at a university. And if you talk to President Buchanan directly, he certainly has a great appreciation for what energy means to the university. So to the question of was there pressure to get rid of carbon sink, the answer seems to be yes. And the question of whether UW caved to that pressure, abandoning its right of free speech and academic freedom, here's Chris Boswell again. It is in the university's interest to be mindful of the um, factors at work in making determinations in the state capitol. But, you know, angry folks don't get to call the shots at the university. The university would be crazy to disregard constituencies completely. But at the same time, the university cannot kowtow to them. It's a balancing act. Nevertheless, the documents do reveal that the sculpture was originally scheduled to be removed next summer, 2013. But an email from President Buchanan to Art Museum Director Susan Moldenhauer said, quote, Given the controversy that it has generated, it would be best for UW if the carbon sink could be considered part of the Prexy's removal during the summer of 2012. The piece was removed in May. Here's Susan Moldenhauer. I don't know what his reasoning was. There was no conversation, so I don't really know why. My only thought was that His request was in the best interest of the institution, and I had to consider that and reply to that. My feeling was it was not part of the pressure or whatever was going on, but I don't don't know. As an aside, Moldenhauer says the museum did see a slight decrease in donations. One of the reasons the university gave for its early removal was the flooding of the piece due to a sprinkler line break. But that happened after President Buchanan's email. Buchanan did not want to comment for this story, but once again, here's Chris Boswell. I think the president was recognizing that the the university had gone through quite a bit as a result of this installation. It had been damaged. And is there any merit in thinking about removing it in 2012? When the legislature approved the half-acre recreation center renovations on campus, lawmakers stuck in language requiring that artwork in the gym must get approved by the governor and address transportation, agriculture, and minerals in Wyoming's history. It's a symbolic gesture with food for thought. For one, Governor Meade doesn't feel terribly qualified to approve or not approve artwork. But here's Representative Lubno's take. I think that... Everybody who has a stake at the University of Wyoming 
should have the opportunity to have a say in what that university looks like for our citizens. And what better body than the mirror of the people of the state of Wyoming through the 90 people who are elected by the people of the state of Wyoming to have input? So the question now is, where does that input stop and the state's only university's autonomy begin? For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Irina Jorov. When we come back, former reporter Molly Messick tells us about a 2010 debate in Wheatland over tolerance. And we travel to Jeffrey City. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to the 10-year anniversary edition of the award-winning Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. A Platte County School Board decision to take down two anti-hate banners at a high school and elementary school in Wheatland touched off an angry debate about gay rights and tolerance. The story received the Best News Feature Award in 2010 from Prindy, the Public Radio News Directors Association. Molly Messick has more. A year and a half ago, Wheatland High School principal Maureen Riff was trying to handle a problem. The idea came about as a result of conversations that I had with our, both our guidance counselors. Kids were picking on other kids. There were racial slurs and stereotyping. It's the stuff that happens in a lot of places that makes high school a painful experience for some students. We thought, well, we can do the heavy-handed thing where we go in and say, quit this, stop this. That doesn't seem to do much. Riff and the counselors looked for a different way of handling it. They wanted something students could take on themselves. They found a program called No Place for Hate, started by the Anti-Defamation League. The students had a no-name-calling week and a day when everyone had lunch with someone they didn't know. By all accounts, the program took off. Reports of bullying dropped. When kids heard other kids saying hurtful things, they'd say, hey, no place for hate. The Anti-Defamation League gave them a banner, which hung in the school's entryway near the gym. It's not very big. The banner is about four feet wide and six feet long. Principal Riff still has it, but it's not hanging any longer. It was taken down in December after five parents called the school superintendent complaining about a particular logo at the bottom of the banner. Right. It's, it's the Gay and Lesbian Fund for Colorado logo. The organization is one of several that funds the anti-bullying program. Riff says a lot of students didn't understand why the banner disappeared. Students saw me take it down and they wanted to know, why are you taking down our banner? So we decided the best way to do it was to present information to the board about the program in a more detailed way than we had done before. And I think everyone was was rather surprised when um, the board voted to keep the banner down. It was a split vote, four to three. And since then, the town itself has been just as divided. I think any time you see a name on something, it's an influence. That's Pat Mitchell, a journalism advisor at Wheatland High School. She wrote a letter to the local paper supporting the board's decision. She says she believes the logo could encourage students to experiment with homosexuality. I think it's saying, okay, we're here for you. We're going to encourage you in this. If you think you are, if you might be, we're telling you that this is okay. And I hesitate to say this, but it is not normal. It's not the norm. 
After the vote, school board member Joe Fabian was quoted in the Wyoming Tribune Eagle saying the same thing, that being gay is not a normal lifestyle. He also said he thinks the Anti-Defamation League supports a pro-gay marriage agenda, and he said Wheatland doesn't. Suddenly, the identity of the town was at stake. The local paper, the Platte County Record-Times, received dozens of letters, most of them supporting the banners. Angry things were said on both sides. When the school board met again, all chairs were full. The crowd spilled into the hallway. A police officer was posted near the front of the room, just in case. One by one, students, teachers, and community members spoke. My name is Abby Geringer, and I am a representative of Wheatland High School as a student. I would like to say that there is a strong feeling of disagreement with the board's decision to take down the banner. My name is Susan Schomburg. I'm a teacher here at Wheatland High School, and I'm also the student council advisor. And I, and I guess I want to take a step back, because what seems to have happened here is that this has become a referendum on gay rights which is really not what the No Place for Hate program was about when we first adopted it. Owen is the first name, and Toth, T-O-T-H, is the last name. I'm a graduate of 1969 high school, and uh, I am gay. And um, it's time for policies of anti-gay to stop, and it's time for hate to stop. No one came forward to support the board's decision. Most asked that the banners go back up. But Board Chairman Kelly Tyson says that won't happen. We're, we're going to move forward. We have, a, we have a no bullying policy in place. Tyson voted against the banners, and he says there's a silent majority in Wheatland supporting the board's decision. He also says he doesn't believe that taking the banners down is discriminatory. The Anti-Defamation League's Bruce Dabowski disagrees. They said the reason they were taking it down is because it had the words gay and lesbian on it. I don't know how you can interpret it differently. It, it's as if they were saying that, it's, that Wheatland is no place for hate except as to gays and lesbians. In light of the board's decision, the Anti-Defamation League has removed the No Place for Hate program from Wheatland schools. Principal Maureen Riff says the conflict has made gay students at Wheatland High School feel afraid. She says there used to be a level of comfort, a sense that the school was a progressive place. Now that's been disrupted. I kind of kept to myself. Justin Hurt lives in Wheatland, and he remembers what it was like to be gay at Wheatland High School. I always had my headphones, so I, you know, didn't have to hear things. I didn't go do after-school activities, so a lot of it was just keeping to myself. Hurt didn't tell anyone he was gay then. He says even now he doesn't know any other openly gay men in Wheatland, but he feels safe. Still, reading the paper these last several weeks has been hard. I have seen some of the comments from the other side and it just upsets me because they sound so old-fashioned in their thinking. And the sad thing is some of them I know, and so it, it hurts in that way. It's just hard to think about those people in the same way as I did before. The question of the school banners has forced into the open beliefs people in Wheatland don't often discuss. The best way of knowing where the heart of this town lies may not come until fall. That's when four of the seven school board members are up for re-election. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Molly Messick. This next story won second place from the Prindy in the Best Investigative category in 2008. It's about a child who was sexually abused, placed in a temporary child welfare facility, but was released eight years later. It's the story of Patrick Barnes and the legal system that failed him. Elsa Partan has more. 
Patrick is 18 now. He's got a big build and wears a black hooded sweatshirt, his trademark. Black curly hair falls to his shoulders. He likes to play Dungeons and Dragons. You know, I'm kind of a computer geek. I'm, I have a bit of too much of an ego. That's my primary flaw. Actually, it's remarkable that Patrick is so sure of himself. At seven, his father sexually abused him, and he was removed from his family in Texas. He first lived with relatives in Utah, then moved in with a distantly related aunt in Lyman, Wyoming. She had recently had back surgery and couldn't work. I think kind of what she was thinking more was not so much taking care of a child as much as getting a cheap servant. He was eight years old, but he had to do the laundry, the cleaning, and the dishes. If he didn't wash one, his aunt told him to stand in the middle of the living room for hours. Before long, she handed him over to St. Joseph's Children's Home in Torrington. She said he was just too much trouble. St. Joe's put him through therapy, and after less than a year, Patrick was ready to be placed in a foster home. The problem was, the courts discovered that his aunt never had legal custody of him in the first place. And they found that they didn't know who actually had custody over me. Whether it was my family, the state of Texas, my aunt and uncle, the state of Utah, my guardian, or state of Wyoming, or who? As you know, there's just no idea. State officials said they could not take legal custody because they didn't know who they were taking it from. Patrick couldn't get a foster family, and he spent the next five years at St. Joseph's. It's a campus of stately brick buildings near the center of Torrington. Some kids stay here on their way from an abusive situation to a foster home. Director Bob Mayer says some of these kids hurt themselves or hit and kick staffers with no warning. Life inside is regimented. Mayer walks through one of the residential buildings. This is the highest level of security that we can do at St. Joseph's. And as you can see, there's a camera in this bedroom. And so if you have a suicidal um, youth that really needs eyes on all the time, uh, we can watch them even while they sleep at night through the cameras. Next door, the school hallway is filled with junior high students. Mayor seems to know each of them. What activity did you have? Um, I had sports. Sports? What did you have? Um, I was in study hall. Mayor can't talk about Patrick's case specifically because of privacy laws, but he does say that St. Joseph's is no place for a kid to grow up. It's an extremely strict environment. Plus, most kids only live here for a few months. After their behavior stabilizes, they move on. Patrick says this was one of the hardest parts about living here. You'd get to know a person and get to really like them, and they'd leave and... You were staying. Exactly. You know, and once again, you saw another guy, another person walk through the doors with a smile on their face, with a family, with everything in their bags just gone. For years, he watched other kids come and go, while St. Joseph's continued to ask the state to get Patrick a family. They spent about $285,000 taking care of him. The head of the Department of Family Services, Tony Lewis, says Patrick's case may be a one-of-a-kind legal snarl. Patrick's case is unusual, but I do think there are parts of Patrick's case that do say things about the larger child welfare system. For example, Lewis says many kids spend too much time in the system before they find a good home. 
but he says there's a much lower chance of a case like Patrick's ever happening again. Just two years ago, the state legislature dramatically increased funding for professionals who act as the child's advocate in the legal system. These are commonly known as GALs. I can count 15, 20 lawyers who do this and do it pretty well, and and a number of other lawyers who are developing this as a specialty. But it was real hit and miss 10, 15 years ago. But Patrick had one of these GALs on his team, even a very experienced one. And he still spent five years waiting for a family because he was in a legal no-man's land. Finally, when he was 16, the state got permission from his father to take custody of him. Patrick now lives with a foster mom in Torrington. She adopted him. I've had a lot of people ask me, you know, if you could change things, would I? And I've gotten to the point where I wouldn't. Even all this stuff that's happened to me, I like who I am, you know? Hey, I'm pretty proud. Patrick is now applying for scholarships to go to college. Finally, he's just like the rest of his peers. But he missed out on a childhood with a family, and there's nothing to stop that from happening to another child. That story was reported by Elsa Partan. The state's largest uranium deposit is near Jeffrey City. The Windy Ranch outpost grew into a uranium boomtown in the 1960s, but by the 80s, the population had dropped from 5,000 down to about 50. Every time uranium prices go up, people wonder if another boom will occur in Jeffrey City. This story was the Prindy Best Feature in 2008. Eddie Goss reports. Through Jeffrey City blows a wind so violent, it sounds like this from the inside of my car. The town is strewn with artifacts of the boom. Near a collapsed and decaying trailer, a chartreuse 1970s refrigerator is tipped on its side. It is sad to see so many empty buildings around not being used. Judy Quarles moved here in 1968. She remembers the 70s when the price of uranium soared to $40 a pound and her little town took off. At one time we had three cafes, three bars, tire shop, a food farm. We had a donut shop. We had the Baptist Church, the Lutheran Church, the Methodist Church, and the Catholic Church. Now, the closest work Quarles can find is part-time at a cafe in Muddy Gap, 23 miles away. In her free time, she sews, takes care of her elderly husband, and goes grocery shopping once every month. She and J.D. Darnell are two of only a handful of people who stayed in Jeffrey City through the bust. Darnell was raised on a ranch here, then became a deputy sheriff for Fremont County. He remembers years ago when young miners would let loose after a long day at work. There was somebody always working, somebody always partying, and somebody trying to sleep 24 hours a day. And uh, we also had quite the little dope problem running around. The party ended in the 1980s. The uranium industry crashed. Darnell says his neighbors disassembled their homes, put them on trucks, and moved away. There's 
houses and Lander, Dubois, Riverton. There's one street in Lander that uh, every time I pass through it, I refer, refer to it as Little Jeffrey City West because uh, there's about 17 houses that used to be downtown Jeffrey City. <laughs> Darnell guides me through what's left of downtown. Along one street, an entire row of houses has vanished, but their foundations are still anchored to the ground, their front steps leading nowhere. Every time you drive by someplace, you get to think about so-and-so that used to live there, you know, and, uh, especially when you go by somebody that was a good friend, you know, and yeah, it kind of jogs the old memory strings. Jeffrey City used to be a company town owned by Western Nuclear. They managed water and sewage, and when they pulled out, the task of running an entire town fell on the shoulders of the few people who were left. We do what little we can. We say we don't have really any money to do much anything other than just kind of patch a hole here and there as best we can, but it's pretty seldom and pretty slim pickings to do. And yeah, let's just go on down here. Ahead of us, a five-foot snowdrift blocks the road. Nobody's around to clear it. Darnell tells me to turn around. Snowdrift and shut. Darnell says over the years, people have rallied to bring something, anything, to Jeffrey City. They wanted to store spent fuel rods here. They wanted the new state prison. Nothing came. The town kept shrinking. Elizabeth Erickson, the substitute teacher at the elementary school, says it still is. Last year there were 14 kids in school, and then there were nine kids, and at the end of the year there were only five, and now we're already back down to four. Four kids from just two families. They're all in different grades, and each needs to be taught their own curriculum, so a full-time teacher commutes here from Lander every day. Erickson has heard the rumors of Jeffrey City building up again soon. So has J.D. Darnell, but neither buys it. About the day after the last bust, they were talking about it booming again. Every couple of years, it's going to be another big boom, and it just maintains as is, nothing happening. Until I actually see people moving in, I ain't going to hold my breath. Even if miners did come, they wouldn't have to live here. There's a paved road now to Riverton. They can commute. Judy Quarles says she doesn't mind if the town stays exactly as it is. I like it here. You know, some people say, well, there's nothing here. There's enough for me. Quarles says she's never considered moving away. Same with J.D. Darnell. And now he doubts he'll ever leave. Well, it's just kind of always been home and... And then also <laughs> own the house and uh, probably not going to find anybody that's wanting to buy this place for what I can afford to sell it for, for one thing. So I got a feeling that this is going to be where I'm at till they plant me in the face with a spade. J.D. Darnell's home faces the highway, where people on their way to somewhere else rush by the few lives that remain here. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Addie Goss.
when we come back, we'll wrap up the special with a visit to the state taxidermy competition. This is Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Bob Beck. The call of nature echoes rather lamely from a stuffed elk or a kudu, and that can only mean one thing. It is the annual Wyoming taxidermy competition. A few years back, Tristan Autone took a trip to Casper to find out what it was all about. I'm standing next to a spotted skunk doing a handstand on a rock when Dwayne Miller asks me this question. You, you ever look at a chicken up close? I haven't. All birds have an S shape in their neck. Yeah, and mine is not quite right. I missed it by a, a little bit. Miller is a taxidermist from New Mexico. He stands about 5'6", has a big bushy white beard, and his mustache is coffee-colored after years of cigarettes. His specialty is birds, and the chicken he's submitted to competition is good, but just a little off and could use a bit of work. We discuss how the spine of a chicken works, but only briefly before he's distracted. That's a nice... That's a nice mallard right there. Miller moves on to the mallard. I move on toward another piece, a crocodile, leaping through the air, out of a river, with its choppers firmly clamped on the foot of a shrieking baboon. It's my favorite. The show and competition feature taxidermists, seminars, and industry salesmen, and it's put on by the Wyoming Association of Taxidermy Artists. Lynn Stewart is president of the association, and he says the competition is important to professionals and hobbyists alike, but it's also good for business. If you come to this show and you win a best of show and a ribbon, you can take the pictures and advertise and show your specialty and perhaps draw more clients in. Stewart says each year the work gets better, and he leads me past a grizzly bear chasing after a mountain sheep perched on a tall rock, as well as a pine marten provocatively sprawled out on a moose antler over a bed of snow, to the showroom, so I can see all the tools and chemicals the industry uses. These are deer eyes, mule deer eyes, and they can all suffice for, for medium antelope eyes, and we can buy these just like this. They cost $7.25 a pair. There are also rubber noses, foam forms to mount the animals on, and a range of books the artists use for reference on mouth shapes, hair tufts, and flesh colors. Stewart says most taxidermists who come to the show don't just come to compete, but to improve their level of taxidermy. What they're trying to do is recreate the anatomy to the best of their ability so it looks natural and real for either a client or a museum or display wherever the specimen goes. This learning process is typically facilitated by judges. Manny Chavez is a 24-year taxidermy veteran and a veteran judge. We judge on craftsmanship, and then we judge on anatomical accuracy of, it, of every everything that's in here. Chavez puts his nose to the nose of a mule deer to check the symmetry of the eyes. Then he checks the tear ducts, then the ears, then the mouth, making marks to a score sheet for each part of the animal. You just go down the line and you grade as you go. If it's not correct, then you deduct. This particular mule deer is in the professional division. The other two divisions are novice and master. Each state has their own criteria for people to be judged in these divisions, but generally... If a person gets two blue ribbons, say, two years in a row, or two blue ribbons at this show, then next year he's automatically bumped up to the higher class until he becomes a master. And that's not easy. It takes practice and critique. When Chavez and the other judges are finished, they'll meet one-on-one -on -one with the artists if the artists want them to, and tell them where they can improve. 
One of those artists is Susan Orchid from Pinedale. She brought a peacock, but she's a little disappointed with her score. I was looking to proceed into masters on my birds, but the competition this year as far as the judges that they had this year were tough. Where did you get the peacock? I bought him out of Ohio. What, like alive or? <laughs> well, he was alive when I bought him. <laughs> and then they killed him and sent him down to me. Orchid explains that she had a few problems getting the peacock mounted. For one, it was hard to clean all the meat out of the wingtips, and she nearly dropped the bird from competition because her efforts weren't going well. So I called my local mortician and said, hey, you got anything for smelly birds? <laughs> and by gosh, he did. Well, what did he have? Um, it was an injection to mask the smell of decomp. But, yeah, it worked. <laughs> Taxidermist Joe Hargrave from Dubois says there's a key to this type of competition. Taxidermist that competes is always thinking ahead. and The wheels are already turning for next year, like better pieces to bring and something to get that award to hang on their shelf at home in their shop. This year, Hargrave brought a mountain lion lazily lying on a tree branch. It took second place as well as Mayor's Choice Award. He's eyeing the lion proudly, sipping a crown and coke, and says that he knows exactly what he's going to do next year to show up his competition, but he refuses to say what that is. Well, if I told you, I'd get out and, and then someone would steal my idea. Fair enough. So, uh, I'll let you off the classified. You have to come to the next show to find out. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Tristan Autone. And to close, here's Bob Beck and Addie Goss. <laughs> Remember when we used to laugh all the time because yeah, Peter the was days. here and Elsa was here? I miss them. Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm Addie Goss. And I'm Bob Beck. He battled his brewing over a plan by a Colorado developer to pipe <laughs> what? <laughs> Oh, we're in trouble now. I know. Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm Addie. <laughs> and I'm Gern Blanstead. A battle is brewing over a plan by a Colorado. Okay, okay, okay. Dead puppies, dead puppies, dead puppies. That's not very pleasant. <laughs> All over the yard. Shoot. I'm very, um, <laughs> Welcome to Open Spaces. I'm, <laughs> I can't do it. Thanks for joining us for Open Spaces during this 50th year of Wyoming Public Radio. We'll have several other news features on our website throughout the year. You can check it all out at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Anna Rader is our web editor. Next week, we'll return with a brand new program. If you have topics or ideas for future shows, you can send them to us through our website. We also encourage you to sign up for our podcast and like our Facebook page. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.